This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There is still a lot of confusion and criticism over the latest guidance from NASI, the National Advisory Council on Immunization, which suggested that the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are better than the others, notably AstraZeneca. Now, the chief medical officer of Nova Scotia waded into that quagmire, too, declaring that Pfizer and Moderna are just better. Meantime, public officials, starting with the prime minister, dove into damage control mode once again, insisting that the best vaccine is the first one you get. Now, we have heard from politicians on this. There's been a lot of criticism, but let's turn to the scientists. Let me give the numbers out in case you have questions, if you have comments. How did this particular piece of guidance make you feel? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor excuse me, at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. We'll start with Dr. Furness. You're an epidemiologist and you work in the Faculty of Information. What's your reaction to this? It was really disappointing. I think technically correct to say that side effects are greater or more frequent with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but both numbers are really close to zero. So to say that there's more side effects with one than the other is to kind of ignore the fact that there's hardly any at all, and the risks of getting COVID are much higher. In Ontario, you've got a 50 times higher chance of dying from COVID than having a severe reaction to AstraZeneca. That's a more useful number for people to hear. And I think because trust matters a lot with vaccination, you have to be so careful with how you present these numbers and the message that you're crafting. Uh, Dr. Sly, when they went into damage control, they said, oh, well, we were just talking about informed consent. What do you say to that? Well, you know, Libby, uh, the medical fraternity has to be transparent. If they're not transparent, then they lose all credibility. And, of course, that means that even if one rare case is found here and another very rare case over there, we have to announce that and display it. And consequently, it's very understandable that somebody can stop what they're doing for a moment and say, oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I should be worried about that. So what we need to do is to look closely at the real figures. Dr. Furness has just given a very accurate example of the risk of death both times, about 50 times more. Let me give you another figure, and that is the risk of, of becoming ill with both either of these two things. In other words, in Ontario right now, the risk of standard uh, random person selected in Ontario, uh, the, the risk of, of contracting up-to-date with the uh, COVID-19 is about 3% of becoming a confirmed case. The risk of uh, choosing not to take the vaccine uh, gives you a risk of between 1 in 100,000 and 1 in 500,000. I mean, these are thousands, if you like, tens of thousands of times different, and those are the kinds of balance we should be looking at. Okay. Uh, Dr. Furness, I mean, you know, it, it, I agree that science should have no other con- considerations, but uh, aren't these people at all aware of the impact of the way they're sending their messages out? Well, I like to call it microscope myopia. And so you've got people on NACI who are very smart, very competent, very capable. I don't think anyone's suggesting otherwise. Um, they're extremely capable. But they don't necessarily translate the impact of the, their thinking, their way of thinking, and the way they use and understand numbers to everybody else. 
So when you're so immersed in talking to scientists all the time, you might not necessarily really understand what people are going to read into what you say. And I think it would be so helpful if they had a social worker and a psychologist to help them say, what does this mean for people? You know, I think being transparent, as Dr. Slice said, so important. Couldn't agree more. But you've got to do it in a way that people can contextualize and make sense of. As soon as they start to panic, as soon as you lose trust, uh, you do a lot of damage. Dr. Sly, the the chief medical officer of Nova Scotia just came out and said, you know, those two, the Pfizer, Moderna, are better vaccines. I mean, I'm assuming that's his opinion, but what do you make of that? Well, if you look look at the at, at, at the entire range of uh, vaccines, he's trying to identify a very very tiny little uh, bump or, or glitch in one over here or one over there, and simply focusing on that. From the public's point of view, they've they've got to be looking at at uh, at, at, at the risk to themselves. To, to their own risk, not not what's what's going down in medical history at some point, but what's the risk to the person in the street, you or I, and that's where we begin to look at the real figures rather than the the almost vanishingly small sort of theoretical presence of something that is is, is hardly measurable, but it is still there. That's the difference. And I think too, uh, if you remember, living back, uh, no, you're far too young, but you remember <laughs> there was a person called uh, uh, a. a public relations person and they would be who the press would go to and it would usually be female very good looking with a big bouffant hairstyle and the teeth that go bling in the sunlight they've gone they've gone they've got to pasture somewhere what we need now and as dr frenesi just sort of mentioned and i'll carry that a little further we need somebody who's technically competent and somebody who's very experienced in communicating that accurately, precisely to the public so they can understand it. No jargon, no huge figures, just can you understand this? And that's, that's the characteristics. And unfortunately, we sometimes see expert boards and committees without that communication expertise. That's, that's, a, that's a great pity. Dr. Furness, again, what's your reaction to the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Nova Scotia just coming out and point blank saying very clearly that uh, Pfizer, Moderna are better vaccines, and, and what do you believe that's based on? Well, it is based on, again, difference in side effects. Uh, it may be, and we don't have a lot of evidence yet, it may be that the Pfizer vaccine will do a better job with some of the contagious variants. So those, you know, technically, technically may well be correct, but the calculus is also going to be really different if you're talking about a province where there's very little COVID. Well, Nova Scotia's Got a, got a huge surge now, but if we go to a province like PEI, where there's almost no COVID, um, the risk of getting a vaccine may look actually quite different to people in terms of, well, do I need to do this right away? So they've got a very different context. In Ontario, it is really urgent that we get vaccinated, that we try and get enough people vaccinated so COVID stops circulating. That's really important more important here than it is in the Maritime. So I, I wonder if we transplanted him here, whether he'd be saying the same. Okay, yes. Uh, now, this has caused, I mean, I, I just got an email from a GP that we talk to often, and, and she's getting deluged with questions in the wake of this about AstraZeneca. I've seen people on social media saying that they feel betrayed, that they're now worried in, in retrospect. Dr. Sly, what would you say to those people? The vaccine itself uh, turned out to be far better than even the phase three trials would suggest, as we've seen the real world data. Because as you remember, you know, 30,000 to 40,000 people are involved in a phase one, two and three trial. And that, the, the, even those numbers were too small to see any problems at all. But then as we get into the real world data, sometimes called phase four trials, but whatever you want to call it, as we begin to see the, the millions and millions of people who are vaccinated, we begin to see the odd, odd case there. This, this vaccine has shown itself to be ex- exceptionally good. 
And so for, it, it's been plagued by so many administrative problems, communicative problems, uh, record-keeping problems, and even design problems in the phases. But the vaccine itself is enormously good. And I would have no trouble. Though. Some of my closest friends and family members have taken AstraZeneca, and uh, 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 there is no shadow of a doubt that that's the right thing to do. But the, the, the previous point was a good one, though, uh, Libby, if I just may, may point out. Do you remember smallpox? It was, it was, of course, as we know, the one human disease that's been completely eliminated. But, you know, the vaccine for that was actually quite dangerous compared to other vaccines. But here's the decision. Would you vaccinate people now for smallpox when it has virtually zero chance of ever being infected by it? No, because the vaccine itself does carry some danger. But during the time when, vac- when smallpox is creeping up toward your street, at that point, it was the, clearly the only thing to do. And so in a much smaller sense, this is what we're looking at here. The vaccine is the right thing to do. It is the correct thing to do. And it's the safe thing to do by a factor of tens of thousands of times risk. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Michael in Mississauga. Hi, Michael. Uh, good afternoon. Okay, basically, uh, I was offered the uh, Pfizer, uh, the, the blood clot vaccine a month ago. And <laughs> blood clot, you mean AstraZeneca. Because, I don't think uh, it's fair I, to call it. I, um, sorry if it's a bad connection. It's, it's a cell phone. Okay, uh, but finally remembered that I was treated for uh, with a blood thinner, and when I read up on the blood thinner, it's for blood clots. I had to talk with my doctor, and he recommended that I get the Pfizer or Moderna. And even yesterday when I got the shot, I was so petrified of getting it, I almost left. Well, uh, you know, you but have I a... Spe- Sorry. You have a specific case, and you consulted your doctor uh, with your medical history, and that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you got your shot, Michael. Thanks for your call. I mean, that's a different story, isn't it, Dr. Sly? Yeah, I'm not an MD, and that's an important consideration. So I think the MD's advice should be uh, really closely looked at here. But I think you will find that there's uh, many, many hundreds of times uh, blood clots are uh, 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 far more frequent, should we say, than this particular one. This one's a very—it's got a name now: VITT, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, and it's—it uh, is related to another extremely rare form of blood clots. But there are all kinds of blood clots that are very, very common. This one is a rare one and very unusual too. In fact, it's based on a on one that's—it's—it's it's, it's based on the thrombin, uh, one that is in fact uh, that is in fact the blood thinner. And so the blood thinners itself is associated with this same type of blood clotting. However, the medical people need to be uh, weighed in on this one. Uh, yeah, and uh, the risk of a blood clot if you get COVID is many times higher than from the vaccine, right? Dr. Exactly. Furness? Exactly. Dr. Furness will verify that. I think he's done a bit more research on that one, exactly. That is that is absolutely right, uh, and we didn't even know that in the early days of COVID. Um, but a lot of catastrophic stroke, um, and that was didn't look like COVID, but but certainly turned out to be. So yes, if you're really concerned about blood clots, the first thing you should do is go get a vaccine so you don't get COVID. Exactly. Now I am wondering. You know, there's a lot of talk about AstraZeneca, and we just called the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and the fact is that pharmacies are almost finished their supplies of AstraZeneca. People who are 55 and over have, have had their shots, you know, before all this cropped up. To a cer- So to a certain extent, all of this might be moot. What do you think of that? I don't really think it's, it's, it's moot in the sense that we're still all expecting deliveries of all of the vaccines so far, including the fourth one, too, Johnson Johnson, which is coming in. So uh, I think we need to grab as much as we can and get them into people's arms. This is a, a desperate situation. We thought we would never be even close to having a triage uh, scenario presented to us. And here we are on the doorstep of it. Now, admittedly, the numbers are going slightly down in the last seven days. And let's hang on to that. But there's no, there's no time to relax at all. This thing can flare up immediately. You know, the analogy we've used in the past is the, is we've, 
we, we keep it down, but it's the dry forest floor. It just needs one match, even in a place, a province that hasn't had many. Look at the Maritimes. They were doing an excellent job, and then suddenly they see a flare-up there. So no time to relax, but uh, perhaps some glimmer of hope on the horizon if we keep the vaccines going. And that's what the immediate solution is. Uh, even, even uh, Let me correct that. The medium-term solution is the vaccines. The immediate one today and this week is the mitigation. It's the distancing and the masking. Keep that going. Vaccines come in a few, in a few weeks' time. That's the benefit. Uh, again, Dr. Furness, so I'm wondering about AstraZeneca because India has halted shipments, which is where we originally were supposed to get it. Presumably, we're getting fr- some from the United States. But, uh, you know, it, I, I think that for a lot of people, there might be a bigger question of, of this business about mixing the vaccines. There's a trial going on in the UK right now on exactly this topic. What happens if you give one and then a different vaccine as a second dose? Now, I'm not an immunologist, so I can really only speculate. But my guess is that two different vaccines that stimulate the immune system in a different way may work in a complementary way. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that having the diversity of vaccine actually produces a broader array of what are called epitopes or different, slightly different flavors of antibodies. Uh, again, not my field, so and, and I'm just speculating. I'm waiting to see the results of that. But it would not surprise me at all to find out that having more than one vaccine ends up being more protective. Well, yeah, that's what a lot of people are theorizing. I'm, uh, do either of you have a straight sense of when the results of that trial? Because uh, one of the last things I heard was that they're not going to be available soon enough for us. And then it, it might be nasty again, that makes the determination. Do either of you know? No, we just know the jury is out at the moment. And everybody is is waiting for these results because of, of the reasons uh, Dr. Vanessa just mentioned. So we just have to hang on and wait and see. The, the one thing we don't want to be doing is is to become, to, to uh, shall we say, uh, forward and without thinking. We need to be seen to be conservative and careful and cautious. That's 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 the uh, that's the overriding principle here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also seen that uh, for two weeks at least, the province is diverting fifty percent of its supplies to the so-called hotspots. Uh, the civic leaders in those areas saying that's good for two weeks, but really that has to happen uh, longer. Doctor Furness, what do you think about that? It's wise. There's no question. And I think even nationally, let alone provincially, we probably should have done a better job of directing vaccines to hotspots. Why? Well, if you look at Peel, there's a lot of essential workers there, a ton of essential workers. And so when you do a lockdown, it doesn't make much difference there. They've got crowded buses with essential workers still going to work. So your other, the other levers that you can pull around social distancing, as, as Dr. Sly mentioned, aren't going to be nearly as effective there. So we have fewer tools. At the same time, we have a lot of sickness. The big challenge there, though, is to set up mass vaccination clinics full of sort of scary-looking people in white coats. That's not going to be necessarily so effective for people who feel marginalized. And Peel has a lot of people who come from backgrounds where the healthcare system doesn't seem like it's for them, where they don't necessarily feel welcome, where the people trying to inject them don't look like them. There's a lot of barriers there. So it's not just diverting vaccine, which I think is a good thing. You've got to go mobile. You've got to go local. And you've got to actually have just as diverse people administering the vaccines as the ones that you hope to receive them. So important. Well, one of the aspects with the guidance uh, that NASI gave yesterday, one of the criticisms of it is that it made it sound like, okay, you essential workers who are at the highest risk at the moment, you have to take the less good vaccine. Dr. Sly, uh, is th- is, that's what a lot of people seem to have heard there. Yes, it's an unfortunate thing, and you can understand how people might interpret that, but it is an interpretive issue. It's not really a, a de facto issue. In fact, the, the idea of, of focusing on and, and giving uh, vaccines as, as, a, as, as effectively and with such a broad coverage as possible uh, makes such a lot of sense, and uh, we can actually point this out as well. If we stand back and look at it from a distance, when we began the vaccination, we began what we would call mass vaccination. We, we did it with polio. We've done that up to date with measles and mumps and you name it. 
But with something, and I hate uh, this is unsurprising. You have to go back to smallpox a second time, but it didn't work with smallpox. And the last huge conurbation of it, which is in Dakar in Bangladesh, there it was found. What really brought it to a close was what we call ring vaccination, which, in a funny sense, is what we're doing here. In other words, we wait until you hear of a suspected case, pounce on the case, vaccinate them, the family, the neighbours, and everybody in the round houses for about one, two houses around. And, and then you wait for the next case to appear. Ring vaccination works. And this is a, an example of it working here where we're having flare-ups, you know, little dumpster fires here in Brampton and places like that. Descend on them, put out that fire, and then wait for the next fire to come along. That's, that technique seems to work in these situations. Um, it brings to mind, I was uh, scratching my head when I saw news about this outbreak at a quarantine hotel that's supposed to uh, make sure that people don't go back into the community with COVID. And I, I was also scratching my head about the guidance on that, saying, well, there was an outbreak at this Crown Plaza where people are supposed to self-isolate, but, but the risk to actual uh, hotel guests, if you can call them that, is, is minimal. Uh, Dr. Furness, did, did that leave you kind of wondering? It was, it, it's eyebrow-raising, but it, this is not the first time that's happened. In fact, New Zealand, which has most experience with careful quarantine, has also reported this happening from time to time. And one particular case was fascinating. There was two people across the hall from each other, and they, they've got guards, they've got CCTV, they know these people didn't interact, and yet one clearly infected the other. They did the genomic analysis to know they were genetically identical until they looked at particular video footage, and when they had the test teams going down the corridor, one person opened their door, pulled down their mask to get a swab, then they knocked on the next door right across, same thing, and clearly there'd been a plume that just went straight across. But wow. the, and, and so that's, that was sort of caught red-handed. But the fact is, hotels are not designed uh, for, for negative air pressure, so you You've got air recirculating, sometimes through bathroom fans, sometimes into corridors. If you think about apartment buildings where you walk down the hallway and you can smell people's cooking, when you've got different units in the same building, you're sharing air, and that is going to create a little bit of risk. So I guess what I want to see is maybe over the next several years having airport hotels fitted out with better ventilation systems. So for the next time we have a pandemic, we've actually got a really safe set of facilities. Yeah, hopefully the next time we have a pandemic is uh, not for another hundred years. Well, we've we've had three COVID uh, incidents now in the last 20 years. Three. SARS-1, MERS, and and SARS-2. So in 20 years, three, it's not going to be long before we get another one, don't worry. By the way, uh, in addition to uh, the New Zealand one, we should point out that Australia had got through their first wave and brought that down virtually to zero. And then exactly the same thing happened. They had a quarantine hotel for returning Australians. It broke out in the hotel. Uh, People were, were broke their quarantine, including some of the security who were supposed to be looking after them, and wondered through Melbourne, and that's what gave rise to a catastrophic second wave, which took a while to bring down. Uh, We only have a few minutes left. Dr. Furness, where do you think we're at? We have seen uh, the numbers go under 3,000, and even that's looking good to us, but it's, it's hard to call that good. We get inured to these big numbers. And so it, it is, it's mind-boggling. Those numbers last year would have been extremely upsetting, and, and we seem inured to them. The trajectory is downwards. I think that the models are showing that's what's going to happen. That's been my expectation. I think the warmer weather, but vaccination in particular, is going to drive that down. This ugly third wave, for us, I think will be the shortest, or at least maybe, maybe I'm, I'm simply speaking hopefully. But I, you know what I think? I think what's been highest impact has not been looking at these numbers, but on, on Twitter and elsewhere, hearing from ICU doctors and nurses and hearing from families, personal individual stories of what this looked like up close. I think that's been a really useful way to sensitize people to just what, what this disease represents and how horrifying those numbers really are. So I hope they come down, but I hope we don't just get too inured to it. I, I really do like those individual stories. It, it really keeps um, a human perspective on what's happening to us. I mean, uh, we're, we're going to hear an individual story after we wrap up with this, and and that's from someone whose mother was moved without her consent to a long-term care home that that is not near 
anything that any family member can get to. So we will hear a personal story after we finish talking about the impact. But all of these things, I mean, that is one of the things that the province insisted is is helping them avoid having to use the triage. But it, it is definitely having an impact on families, Dr. Sly. Yeah, and no, what really worries me are the, are the stories coming out of the medical staff themselves. Actually, burnout, psychological, physiological uh, exhaustion, fatigue, and we would probably predict something like PTSD in some of these people for an extended period of time after this. And then from the, the patient, patient's point of view, we're getting still uh, young, young people, comparatively young people, whole families of people, including, you know, kids and parents and grandparents being shuttled in the hospital. We didn't see this in the beginning of the outbreak. And while we've still got 10 to 20 percent positivity rate, that's horrendous. I won't relax until it gets down to about 1%, and then we can begin to relax a little bit, far too soon to uh, let down the guard. Well, yeah, and we have so far avoided this triage where not everybody would get intensive care, but elective, so-called elective surgeries are being cancelled. The backlog is something like a quarter of a million, Dr. Furness. It's the numbers are brutal. I mean, I, I don't see any other way to uh, any other way to say it. We're already doing triage. We're suspending elective surgeries. We've got um, we've got, as you say, people being transferred without their consent elsewhere. There's a lot of triage going on. Let's 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 not make any mistake about it. We let the province let our healthcare systems get overwhelmed. We let this get out of control, and it didn't have to be this way. So you're considering that it is already out of control. No question. No question. It doesn't take much talk with colleagues of mine who are working in, in acute care. It's brutal. It's, it's absolutely dreadful. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of PTSD among those folks, not just the, not just the victims, but the people doing the treating. Uh, yeah, and uh, it does seem that hospitals are still able to maintain emergency care, though. I don't know up close. I, I expect probably so. When you have lockdowns, I think you have fewer things like broken bones and what have you. So people moving around less probably creates a little bit less traffic in there. You've got to have emergency services, of course. But again, what becomes elective and what we mean by elective, uh, you know, that the, the bar there can really move quite a bit. So it's, it's, it's really concerning. It's very, very concerning. I, I, I'd like to think we're at rock bottom right now. That's, that's, I guess, my hopeful feeling is that as cases come down, it's going to take a few weeks for ICU and hospitalization to come down because it lags. And I really can't wait to see those numbers start to come back. And uh, so uh, to try to end on a positive note, uh, Dr. Sly, we're talking about numbers coming down. How much longer do you speculate that this, that this uh, wave will last? Oh, Libby, that's the question, isn't it? Uh, listen, we will reach the end of this. All pandemics end. Keep that thought in mind. And it's up to us whether we get that pandemic ended sooner or later. And that depends on how we act and how, how our attitude is and whether we get the vaccines in here and whether we keep on the mitigation. That's, that, that bit of it is up to us. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Colin Furness and Dr. Timothy Sly. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have one of those human stories on what the impact of some of these decisions, some of these emergency decisions are. We'll be talking to Harry on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last week on Fight Back, we learned that the province amended an emergency order in order to allow hospitals to move alternate level of care patients out of hospitals and into long-term care homes without their consent, and that in order to alleviate pressures amid the third wave. Well, now we have a face to that story. Harry is a Zoomer Radio listener, and he tells us that his mother was transferred unwillingly in a way that was both stressful for her and the rest of the family, and the reason being was that she was transferred to a location that no one 
could get to. Uh, there is an ending to this story, but let's hear it all before we get to that. Harry doesn't want to give his last name or his location. He joins me now. Hi, Harry. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Libby. Uh, bon après-midi. Okay, bon après-midi. Your mother is 98. What happened to her? Well, yeah, she'll be 99 next uh, month. And, uh, well, you know, my mom uh, lived at home up until uh, December. And wow. she lived with my sister, who uh, who has uh, is developmentally uh, challenged. And they did well in the last 14 years, uh, taking care of each other, actually, uh, supported with myself, uh, community living, helping my sister, and having home support. But my mom got progressively, um, you know, physically and mentally, she, she deteriorated and started acting her age. I mean, she did very, very well with my sister living alone. Uh, and it, it, it reached a, a climax in just before Christmas when, uh, she, she was forced to be hospitalized. And, uh, and prior to that, she was totally, she and my sister were totally against the idea of moving to a long-term care, uh, facility, uh, prior to, uh, COVID and even more so after the, you know, the COVID experience. Well, who could blame them? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and but you know so my 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 mom was put on a prioritized uh basis highest uh, priority to to be relocated to um uh a long term care home and in, in the area where they live there are multiples it's a small town in ontario outside uh, well outside the gta and uh there are multiple options uh, nearby in fact walking distance, just as the hospital where she was located was walking distance. And my sister uh, walked on a daily basis to visit my mom in the hospital while she was waiting. And just and, uh, just to clarify, you live in the GTA? Correct. Correct. Okay. North north of uh, Toronto, but in, in the GTA area. So, uh, you know, so, so as, as lockdown hit us, my access to her, you know, became uh, impossible, right, other than uh, telephone. But my sister was declared uh, an essential caregiver and did have uh, visitation rights in the local hospital, walking distance from the home. So there she sat from there until uh, last week, late last week. Uh, you know, prior to last week, I was aware of a threat of moving her out of the area. I had been approached as her power of attorney to consider moving her to a temporary, uh, it was actually beds that the hospital system, not a long-term care facility, but a private um, retirement home where, where the hospital system had rented beds. But this was outside, uh, this was like an hour from, from, from the hospital where she was. And your sister and, has no way of getting there. That's correct. Like my sister has, you know, and, and even, even, you know, and my sister, because of her situation, you know, even that threat was mentally imposing on her, on me as well, but particularly on my sister because of her special challenges. And at this point, living alone uh, with help from me and from community living. So I, we were aware of the threat, but it, it was, you know, when, when those that, that uh, made the proposal to us uh, understood the situation, they backed away. Uh, and frankly, I was encouraged by announcements that the Minister of Health made. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, she made an announcement that they were pressuring the long-term care facilities to find room uh, to take these patients uh, out of the hospitals who didn't require hospital care but needed a space. So I thought, well, that's great because they they had reduced the number of beds in you know during the peak of uh, of COVID uh, because of COVID. But now that basically they're they're one of the safest places around from a COVID point of view, and so the the minister was urging them to find space to take these patients that. From and free up these beds that they potentially would need in the hospitals, and and the second announcement that uh, or, or pronouncement that the minister made that I found encouraging was 
was as early as as recently as last week. She she upon questioning, she said when they they made this um, uh, move without permission uh, a possibility, she said only in stream cases would we do that. And under questioning, they said, well, would you move people away from their family? And she said, she, first she said no, and she said only in extreme extreme cases would we even consider doing that. And after complete consultation with the with the family, so that was <laughs> but that's not the way it turned out. Not not at all. In fact, on Thursday of uh, last week, three o'clock, I received a call advising me, not consulting with me, not and from someone who I had never dealt with before. That in fact, my mom was going to be moved the next day out of town uh, to a facility that was being rented by the hospital system. Uh, and when I expressed surprise and disappointment and, and that this was uh, was contrary to what I was hearing out of the mouth of the Minister of Health, uh, you know, they said, well, the decision has been made and uh, we're just calling to advise you that she'll be moving tomorrow. And uh, so at that point, you know, my, you know, I, I said, well, you know, I'm not going to take this sitting down. Um, I said, I need to, I need to speak to whoever made that decision. And so I was, I was given, uh, you know, I need to escalate this. And uh, so I did a number of things. One is uh, I was given a name to contact, and I, I contacted that person. And and I also wrote uh, a message to the Premier, to the Minister of Health, the Minister of uh, Long-Term Care, their Chiefs of Staff, and uh, and the deputy ministers for both those ministries and pleaded, you know, I sent it on an urgent basis and pleaded with them to please help me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that was at the top of their list of things to read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And But, you know, at that point, and so I, I was contacted, I have to say. So I received a couple of, uh, you know, thank you for your, you know, auto messages. Thank oh, you for great. your inquiry. Yeah. And and uh, and one, uh, <laughs> the first line I thought, okay, this is more personal. It says, well, you know, sorry to hear about your mom. And then it went on and referred me to government policies and a couple of links to websites. And it was signed, Minister of Long Term Care, no name, just not Minister, Ministry of Long Term Care. Okay. And for more information, read these websites. So you know that wasn't great. But I did receive two phone calls. Uh, one was from the local MPP, who somehow my message had filtered down to him. And he also happens to be a cabinet minister, not one of the relevant ministries here. But And so he listened to my story and was very empathetic and volunteered to do what he, whatever he could to help. And, uh, and, and I told him I was continuing to try to work the system. And working the system, uh, I dealt with... How much time did you have to spend on all of this? Well, this was all taking place on Friday morning before, you know, my mom was still in the hospital, in uh, the original hospital at this point. And uh, so this, you know, like I say, I received the call on Thursday. So, and of course, you know, I had to care for my sister too, who was having a you know, an emotional reaction to all of this, as was my mom. My mom, quite frankly, oof. Sorry to hear that. I, I, I'm not going to say what my mom said. Sorry, Libby. So, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, so I, I was able to speak with a senior executive mm-hmm. in the hospital system who was very understanding and was equally frustrated. Um, that according to her, there were in fact the information available to her and subsequent research I did said that there were beds available in the long-term care. And in fact, within one of the ones, and my my mother's preferred one, my mother actually had served as a volunteer there, uh, within walking distance of the home. And the real question was, why isn't my mom, who's on a, you know, was was indicated to me was number two or number three priority all the way back in January, and that these beds were being 
turned over, but not for my mom. So, quite frankly, the executive didn't understand why that was the case, and she promised to try to get to the bottom of it. And uh, and in the meantime, uh, simultaneous while those two people, the M- MPP slash cabinet minister and the executive in the hospital system were doing what they could from within the system, I decided to go out and get some grassroots information and to go and go directly to the sources of some of these facilities and to see what was going on. One, to see if, in fact, there was any uh, validity to the point of beds being available, and two, to have a better understanding that if and when my mom went there, what are the existing conditions? Uh-huh. What are... What are the visiting terms? What are, like, my mom is currently in isolation in this second facility for two weeks. Harry, uh, we're going to have to wrap things up. I gather that there was a good resolution to this um, once you told them that you were going public with this. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, (laughs) is it all a coincidence? But I did uh, receive a message an hour ago that my mom, in fact, is going to be transferred to her her long-term care facility of first choice two days from now. And I received that call an hour ago. Now, you know, did things just, you know, did, is it all coincidence? I mean, you can draw your own conclusions. But, and you told uh, them you were going to tell your story here on Fightback, right? I did. So if you, if you want to take some of the credit, uh, I'm happy to pass that message on to my mom. <laughs> well, we're, we're really happy that it is going to be resolved in a good way and really sorry for all the aggravation that especially your mom and and your sister had to go through. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I ho- hopefully, hopefully people will learn and that some of the inefficiencies or lack of transparency or lack of coordination will benefit others. I mean, I did this for my mom, but I hope others will. I hope it'll, it'll end up in a better system for everyone. Okay, Harry, well, we're very glad, as I said, that there is an amicable and a good resolution to this and very sorry for all the trouble it caused and and giving us some insight about what this business about transferring people without their will really means when it comes down to a family. Thank you very much for sharing your story. And thank you for your role. Okay. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we will talk about those restrictions that have been eased in long-term care when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the province responded to long-standing requests from people in long-term care and their loved ones, easing restrictions. The new measures will allow residents to be able to resume activities like communal dining and indoor events and gatherings with precautions, and those who are immunized may engage in more intimate interactions, like hugging, if they choose. Now, Until now, we've heard from listeners complaining that their family members have been confined to their rooms, even when they are fully vaccinated. Now, clearly, this will greatly help residents' mental health. But there's also a question. What about the risk now that workers are not required to have their shots and uh, they are now allowed to work in more than one home, which is a factor that contributed to the spread in wave one. Let's go to Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Hi, Donna. Hi, Libby. Good to be here. Um, so first of all, what was your reaction to this easing of the restrictions? Well, it's you know, I, I, I have to say that uh, we're relieved. Uh, we've got clear guidance now that, that where we have vaccine rates that are high, quite honestly, we think that this is going to incent more people to get vaccines. We hope so. Uh, and it's time for hugs. We've got to bring hugs back. So communal dining is coming back in, uh, activities in the home. Uh, so long as the homes are not in outbreak, uh, we can move towards normalcy again. And uh, we're, we're, we're very, very pleased because it's, it's been a long 
14, 15 months for everybody, and, and it really is uh, time time to, to, to bring life back into our homes. My understanding, though, is that there are some homes where something like 30% of the workers are not vaccinated. Yeah, and, that, and that's going to be a problem. Uh, we're hearing that the vaccine rates are increasing, continue to increase, um, with mobile units now moving and, and the government mobilizing. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing far better numbers emerge in our homes. Some of our members are as high as 95% vaccine rates for their staff, which is amazing. Um, but uh, we, we know that the condition to open up is, is going to be required. Uh, it's only going to be possible where homes have an 85% uh, percentage of residents being vaccinated and 70% of employees being well, immunized. Sorry, but 70% of employees doesn't sound very high to me. It's, you know, I, I think we've, we're working with government to, to get that higher. Uh, and as I said, um, we really want to inc- use this to encourage our employees to, to get vaccinated. And we're working with government to do what we can to, to bring vaccines into the homes so that we can increase the rates. Uh, we are pleased, though, that we, we've got a starting point. Uh, we still have to follow social distancing and wear masks and do the infection prevention and control uh, protocols. Uh, the key for us is, is really opening the doors again in, in a very measured and thoughtful way. And uh, we certainly support the government's approach and, and do believe that this is a measured first step. Do your employees even have to disclose whether or not they're they're vaccinated? Um, that, that's a great question. Um, we, we certainly have to ask them, and uh, we, we certainly rely on them uh, to be truthful and, and honest uh, as we try to track what their, what their vaccination rates are. Uh, it's really important that we know and that uh, everybody be completely honest. Uh, we, uh, we're relying on, on their, their word, uh, and, uh, but obviously if we can do the vaccines in the home, we will have a clear line of sight as to who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. Right. But the, some of the reason it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, whether they can get there, it's, it's vaccine hesitancy. A lot of them don't want it. Yeah. We're, we're doing a lot of work, uh, to, to a to deal with that, uh, we're seeing in many cases it's not clear refusal. In many cases, it's access uh, to, to vaccines. In many cases, we're hearing, especially in uh, rural and, and more remote communities, it's it's travel to the vaccine. That's why we, we, we keep asking and, and uh, appealing to the government to have in-home vaccine clinics. We know how successful those were in the city of Toronto uh back in December and January, where you can have those one-on-one discussions where people can see their colleagues getting vaccinated. Uh, we believe that, that by bringing vaccines into the home, that will increase our rates uh, and will help, uh, help advance these uh, visiting, new visiting um, protocols uh, in, in all of our homes. Now, um, is there anything scientific? You've said that that you will institute these these relaxed restrictions if eighty five percent of residents and seventy percent of staff are vaccinated. What is what is that based on? Well, we we take our advice from from the, from the government on this, and, and the government has has worked this through with the scientific table and public health uh, and the public health guidance. Uh, we are we are going to continue to work very closely with public health, and uh, part of the the new guidance is that uh, it will be up to the public health units to work with our homes and direct our homes to ensure that this is being implemented appropriately. So uh, we are, we're going to be partners with public health uh, and uh, make sure that this is done safely and and. Uh, well, because number one priority has to be the safety of, of our residents and our staff. Yeah, and I mean, we've heard a lot about the the damage to their mental health, and and I've been hearing stories about people again who are fully vaccinated but still confined to their rooms. So, what kind of a difference do you expect this to make? Well, if, if a home's an outbreak, uh, and Regardless of vaccination rates, uh, if a home is an outbreak, then the, the visiting protocols will, will not be in effect. Um, 
we're certainly hearing from our from our members, from our homes, from our staff, from our partners in the residence council and family councils, that uh, everyone's exhausted. Uh, this is Mental Health Week. Uh, yeah. We think that uh, we believe that uh, resuming human contact and, and having hugs will make it a, a will be an important first step to raising the spirits uh, and helping to make a difference to restore the mental health and well-being of everyone in the home. Um, Bringing people together and not being afraid to touch them, uh, it's it's been harrowing for everyone. It's been traumatizing. And and uh, we, we do think that uh, it's been far too long before we've allowed hugs. So so we're, we are embracing this. We, we want hugs back. And it, would that be in terms of visitors, just the essential caregivers or other family members are allowed to hug as well? At this point, it's just the essential caregivers. So we're still uh, restricted uh, because we are in, still in lockdown. Uh, so the ability of somebody to leave the home is very much tied into the ability of, of any of us to leave our home if we have to go for groceries or visits. Uh, and then those coming in is still restricted to the essential caregivers. So we're, we're hopeful that as vaccines get deployed across the province and more and more people uh, are vaccinated and we have more and more vaccines to make that happen, that uh, we'll be able to open. Uh, we're also hopeful that as, as we move into warmer uh, weather conditions, that uh, we'll be able to expand visitation to, to others as well for outdoor visits, similar to what we did last uh, last summer. So we're hopeful that the, the coming of, of warm weather will, will allow more and, and other people to come in to visit. And do you have a handle on what percentage of long-term care homes are going to be able to ease restrictions? I, I don't right now. Um, this is this is new guidance and a new direction that was issued yesterday. So we're, we're really interested in finding out from government and, and from our members who's going to meet that uh, you know, we're relying on the government data on the vaccine rates right now. So, uh, we're, uh, you know, that, that data, that those information are going to be really important so that our residents and our families and our staff all know, uh, what homes will be able to open and what homes won't. So transparency will be, uh, key for us. And when do you think it'll take effect? Uh, so we're, it was, took, took effect yesterday. So, um, we're, uh, you know, we're hearing already that uh, they've opened up our, our homes yesterday. We're, we're getting set up for communal dining and bringing uh, people back in together. So um, we're, 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 we're quite happy about that. Uh, but it is going to be a process and, and, you know, we anticipate there are going to be some bumps and hiccups. Uh, we've certainly seen throughout the last 14 months different public health units have different directions. So we want to ensure that there's clarity and consistency across the province so everybody knows. Again, that transparency about which homes are able to open up is going to be very, very key for, for all of us. All right. Donna Duncan, thank you so much for being with us and uh, best of luck with this. Great. Thanks, Libby. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.